One of the themes that has shown up in the groups, several of them actually, is what I sometimes call the wisdom of impermanence, which is the sense that, um, wow, this retreat's coming to a close. There's only a certain amount of time, and, and am I aligned? Am I really here for it? Am I getting what I want? Or, wow, this body's coming to a close. Or, wow, you know, sensing the, that time is passing and that what we have, we lose. And how are we in relationship to that? And it can be a wisdom of impermanence. It can be a wake-up. And it made me think of Andres Gregory. He's a writer and author. Some of you might have uh, seen the movie Dinner with Andres, My Dinner with Andre. Anyway, a man asks him about his writing. And he responded with a story about his wife that when she had gone into surgery to have anesthesia, he realized belatedly that he hadn't really said to her what he wanted to say. And he made a commitment that when she woke up that he was going to speak his heart as if for the last time. That that's how he was going to be in relationship. And then he said to the man who asked him the question about writing, write like that. And in a bigger way, live like that. That we don't know how long we have. So really to live these precious moments from that quality of wholeness. So, to me, when I, when I think about that, and I think about how there's reports that the greatest, perhaps, regret of the, of the dying is the sense of not living true to myself. And that that's not just the dying. That if there's any deep regret we live with, it's kind of a shadow hanging over us. It's a sense that I'm not living this life to the fullness of who I am, or to my potential, or capacity, true to my heart. And what we find is that we sense that and then get really discouraged because we see all the egoic ways that we in some way uh, pull away or disconnect from the who we are. We, we watch ourselves pretty daily trying to fix things or change things or prove ourselves or defend ourselves, promote ourselves. So, so we, have, we kind of live in that ego realm. And some of you might have heard of this website called Lives On, and it's dedicated to your social afterlife. <laughs> Listen to this. It says, your, t- your Twitter remains active, and it goes like this. When your heart stops beating, you'll keep tweeting. <laughs> so it's basically, you know, you can keep, this is another effort to keep this ego self going. Pretty amazing. But I think this, this, there's something so resonant to us when we really start saying, well, what does it mean to live true to myself? In a way, I feel like that's a, an undercurrent when we come to retreat. Like there's something in us that really, we want to come home and be who we are. And what I wonder right this moment is if you ask that question to yourself and take it right into the present. Like if you just say, okay, what does it mean to be true to myself in this moment? I'd like to ask you if you'll check that out. 
You know, what does it mean to live true to myself right in this moment? What lets me know I'm living true to myself right in this moment? And I wonder, and I'm just going to ask for just a few words from you, just to sense what's in the room, just to, you know, what, what is it? Just say a word or two, anybody. Just raise your hand and so I can point so we don't all at once. But what does it mean? What do you find out? Yeah. Humility. Humility. So there's a quality of humility when you're really living true to yourself. Thank you. Any other? There's, a lot, there's no right answer, by the way. What else? Yeah. Freedom. So there's this quality of freedom. Yeah, in the back. Undivided attention. So when I'm really living true to myself, there's undivided attention. Yeah. Certainty. Huh. Yeah. Gratitude. Yeah. Contentment. Playfulness. Yeah. Less self. So you sense that there's a presence that's just less confined in a self. Groundedness. So what we get is that there's a lot of flavors. But it's a really important question because it matters to us to be really at home and live this moment true. Um, in some way, I think that all of those weaves come into meaning that we're here for the moment, that we're embodied, that we're in our aliveness. And we can't be true to ourselves if we're not here, if we're not feeling embodied. This is a quality of, of openness, of presence that allows for gratitude, allows for all the other expressions. So if we take an evolutionary perspective... It's our deep potential to live true to ourselves. That it's our potential to realize our wholeness, to feel this, this quality of awakeness and openness and gratitude and all the other. That, that's our potential. And we are designed to identify with a separate sense of self to feel fear and craving that circles around that, and to get caught chasing after things and avoiding things. That's part of our design. And the reason I bring that up is that so much of the spiritual path is feeling like we're not living true to ourselves and having to find a way to get our arms around that. Do you know what I mean? That we keep running into all the ways we're not. And if we can get it that every one of us has a nervous system and brain that's really designed to leave ourselves, to go into the future, the past, and so on, it makes it a little easier to be forgiving. Evolution's really helpful. Somebody sent me this about a year ago. I'll share with you. It's a little girl asked her mom, how did the human race appear? The mother answered, well, God made Adam and Eve. They had children. And so all mankind was made. Two days later, the girl asked her father the same question. The father answered, Many years ago, there were monkeys from which the human race evolved. (laughs) The confused girl returned to her mother and said, Mom, how is it possible you told me the human race was created by God and Dad said they were developed from monkeys? The mother answered, Well, dear, it's very simple. 
I told you about my side of the family, and he told you about his. <laughs> We're also designed for one-upmanship. <laughs> So what I'd like to do tonight, and it's really a continuation of this Sherry's very beautiful and deep talk about, really, about what evolves us, what changes us, how we be with the challenges of the conditioning we have, how do we be with the reality that we are rigged to go into trance, we're rigged to forget and leave that wholeness of being. How do we work with that? And my emphasis will be on a quality of heart that's necessary. And I kind of, I mean, there's many different facets of our being we draw on, but the centrality of the quality of heart, uh, and in particular, self-compassion. And I, I was reviewing some uh, different files, and one of it for the in Chinese calligraphy, the word mindfulness means pre, is described in the characters as present heart. And in uh, Asian different Asian scripts, the word for heart and mind are the same. And so I always find that when I hear that there's a training in mindfulness, I want to say, oh, mindfulness and heartfulness. Because it's really easy, given our conditioning, to take refuge in the brain, to think of mindfulness as something up here. Do you know what I mean? That we're being mindful, we're paying attention for up here to something. And in the process, to leave our bodies. And if we leave our bodies, there's no access to our hearts. I've been struck by a story I heard of years ago. This is uh, Carl Jung and his meeting. Some of you might have read about this in the 1920s with the uh, Pueblo Indian chief, Taos, uh, New Mexico. And they were conversing about the difference between uh, their two peoples. And speaking of the white man, the chief, Ochawaya, I think I'm pronouncing it right, says to Dr. Jung, their eyes have a staring expression. They're always seeking something. What are they seeking? The whites always want something. They're always uneasy and restless. We don't know what they want. We don't understand them. We think they're mad. <laughs> and then Young says, I asked him why he thought the whites were all mad. And then the response was, they say that they think with their heads. Why, of course, said Young. What do you think with? And the response was, we think here, and he put his hand over his heart, we think here. Just to consider that we have this identification that our understandings and our, our process of processing is up here, and is it really? I mean, there's much research that says the heart is a brain. It's got all the the, neur- the neurological and electrical currents that would make it a brain. And where do our actions really come from? Where do we really process? Just to begin with that, because we'll be exploring how heart presence, this capacity to be awake and perceive with our heart, let this world come through this open, empty tenderness, the sensitivity that's heart space, I like the language of heart space, is really um, essential in our evolution. 
that it really is what evolves us from fight, flight, freeze, from the egoic state into what's sometimes described as attend and befriend, resting in something larger. So the beginning of heart presence is recognizing that we're not there, and it's the suffering that comes when we're disconnected. And that's, for most of us, what starts waking us up. We start getting that we're down on ourselves, we're in conflict with others, we're caught in anxiety or guilt or depression or anger. That's that's usually the wake-up that starts requiring a kind of attention that can bring us back. So one of the great inquiries that many of you are familiar with is really what is between me and heart presence or an open heart right in this moment. And if you ask that, and if you even ask that right now and you really check in, you know, what is between me and heart presence right now? And I'm doing it because it's really fun for me to do these while I'm speaking because I get more here. (laughs) What is between me and heart presence in this moment? It's the kind of inquiry Rumi invites us to when he says, don't seek for love, but just seek for all the barriers that you've created between yourself and love. It's like we just begin to notice. It's, It's not that we have to get to love. It's here. It's what we are. But there's been constructs, ways of leaving that keep us from feeling it. So we ask ourselves, what's between me and loving presence or heart presence? And we'll find that there's either a sense of, well, I just am not here to feel it. I've been off thinking. I'm not in my body. I'm from here up. How many of you might have asked that question and noticed that just now? That you just weren't enough in your body to really authentically feel it? Can I see by hands? How many of you noticed that? Because okay, that's what happened to me. I asked and I said, wait a minute, I've got to come down more. Okay come down into this body. What we find is that we're in some sort of a reactivity, some form of contraction away from presence when we ask that question. And we find if we look under it, that under that contraction is a sense that something's wrong or something's missing. Can't be here, something's wrong, something's missing, and we've left some. There's three main ways we leave three kind of domains that we're trying to control our existence because something's wrong or something's missing, so we leave. And those three domains correspond with the parts of our brain. Again, I'm kind of keeping with evolution, but it also goes with Buddhist teachings that we leave because we're trying to avoid harm. We leave because, and the avoiding harm is our reptilian brain, we leave because we're trying to enhance ourselves or seek pleasure, seek what nurtures, that's the mammalian part of the brain, and then we leave because we're trying to secure our attachments with others, which is the primate part of our brain. Let's just dive in a little bit more because I'm going to be asking you to kind of sense, well, how have you been leaving? Because we all leave some. So when we're leaving from that reptilian part of our brain, it's, there's, there's fear. You can sense anger or fear, and we're in some way feeling threatened. And the image I have is of a gecko or a lizard kind of slithering under a rock. In some way, we're, we're protecting ourselves. It might be more aggressive. It might be the, the rattler, you know, rattling and then about to attack. But it's that reptilian part of us. And for most of us, it's mental the way we do it. 
I mean, we do it because we plan and rehearse and prepare and worry and figure out, and we do a lot of judging, which is another way to protect ourselves from harm. Put somebody down, we get put up, we get more protected. That's kind of the, uh, it's a fight, flight, freeze on the reptilian level. A lot of, a lot of blaming. When we're, when we're threatened, we, we lash out and blame. And sometimes it's very physical, too. Rita Rudner says, my grandmother was a very tough woman. She buried three husbands. Two of them were just napping. <laughs> okay, so that's the avoid hard reptilian part. Then we have the pursuing what nurtures, and you, you know that part. That's the craving, wanting something more, something's missing. And at retreat, often it's the mental kind of fixation on food or getting more sleep, or how many of you notice planning around showers, you know, or it's whatever we, so, yeah, yeah, we get fixed on these things. It can be sexual fantasies could be planning on a, on a long walk, whatever it is that it's going to make us feel better. And it's a lot of energy goes towards that, you probably noticed. So my image for that, you've got the gecko slithering under a rock. My image for the, for the mammalian brain that's you know, searching for pleasure is kind of a, a squirrel that's scurrying around after acorns and collecting and you know, just kind of busy doing that stuff. And sometimes it, we, we do it in ways, you know, in our relationships, you know, to get what we want that are very manipulative. So you can see the, the, that collecting and trying to get pleasure in very manipulative ways. I'll read you something someone shared, uh, sent to me, emailed me last week. A man from Tyson's Foods is visiting with the Pope. After receiving the papal blessing, he whispers, your eminence, we have a wonderful deal for you. If you will change the Lord's Prayer from give us this day our daily bread to give us this day our daily chicken, <laughs> we are prepared to donate $300 million to the church. <laughs> That's not possible, the Pope responds. The prayer is the word of the Lord and it must not be changed. Well, the man from Tyson says, we're prepared to donate $1 billion to the church if you'll change the Lord's Prayer from give us this day our daily bread to give us this day our daily chicken. Again, the Pope responds, that's not possible. The prayer is the word of the Lord, and it must not be changed. Finally, the man from Tyson says, your eminence, this is our final offer. We are prepared to donate $3 billion to the church if you'll change the Lord's prayer from give us this day our daily bread to our daily chicken. Then he leaves. The following day, the Pope meets with the College of Cardinals to inform them that he has good news and bad news. The good news is that the church has come into $3 billion dollars. The bad news, we're losing the Wonder Bread account. <laughs> it's pretty bad, I know. <laughs> okay. All right, so the mammalian is the scurrying around, sometimes manipulatively, trying to get what we want. And then we've got the primate brain that's trying to secure attachments. And you'll have noticed that one here with any of the relational obsessing with shame, how we're falling short, with guilt, how we're falling short, with self-consciousness in the group setting, uh, fear about getting together for the group meetings. Um, we usually obsess about what's not working and what's wrong with us, and there's a lot of emphasis on approval-seeking. That's probably the biggest one. And that's the, 
the uh, kind of securing attachments. And, I, and it's the monkey that's grooming and that's jostling for attention or competing for attention or in some way trying to do whatever it takes to get the other to groom it back. There's a writer from New York that tells a story that I think is great for this kind of attachment piece. He talks about how when his son turned 12, they lost their closeness and they were unable to have a conversation. So this is, you know, him feeling like, wow, you know, we don't have any ways to relate. But then he stumbled on texting and he abhorred texting, but he found out that was a way to have some connection with his son. So his son taught him abbreviations, some of them, and he said one abbreviation he didn't have to teach me because it was so self-evident, and that one was LOL. I knew right away what it meant, lots of love, because he put it at the end of every message he sent me. (laughs) He says it's such a beautiful telegraphic abbreviation for the 20th century. It's like a little arrow of love you can send out to anyone you know, LOL. You can see where this is going, right? <laughs> Describes the next six months as infatuation with instant messaging. He said it's the power of emotional transmission. He sent LOL to everyone he knew. <laughs> His sister was getting divorced. And he wrote to her, we're all behind you and beside you. LOL, your brother. <laughs> His father got ill. He sent him LOL in Canada. Everyone I know at work, at home, everyone, he sent them LOL. People would be losing money in the stock market. LOL, you know. Happened to be, I was um, instant messaging my son at the airport, and he he said he hated, and this guy was telling his son that he hated being away because he had to travel, but he needed to make some more money because, you know, the family was kind of on an edge, and he signed it LOL. And the son responds, Dad, what exactly do you think LOL means? (laughs) Lots of love, obviously. No, Dad, it means laughing out loud. Well, his world crumbled. (laughs) He had to go through every message he had ever said to make amends. But what we will do to secure our attachments. Okay, so here's the question I have for you. Is that if you reflect on this last 24 hours and you sense the different ways you've noticed you leaving, you know, and you sense, well... How much was it uh, the avoiding harm, that that kind of reptilian brain that's planning and worrying, the sense that something around the corner is um, not going to be okay? How many of you noticed uh, the gecko or the reptile? Just out of curiosity, the avoiding fear in the ways you've left. Okay. And then how many with the mammalian, the seeking pleasure, want the shower, want the food, want the this, want the that, planning going around that one? Okay, we've got more squirrels here than lizards. <laughs> and then how many, and by the way, most of us have them all and they're layered, but some are more predominant, okay? And then how many with the monkey, the attachment, the feelings of fear, sh- the shame and guilt and so on around relationships and so on came up? Some of you. So the inquiry is that with each of them, how quickly can we notice that we're leaving. And this is really the training. We're getting more awake to the fact that, oh, I've left. And there's some sign of suffering that comes up. And then what's the practice of homecoming? How do we come back into presence? And the 
main, one of the main key pieces we've been emphasizing over and over again. Each of these ways of leaving usually is disembodiment. You know, we leave and it's usually a mental fixation and we're not in our senses anymore. So the first step when you recognize leaving is usually in some way to re-scan through and reconnect with what's going on in your body. And that's, that's the coming back. And you can use the story as a portal. It's not like you have to say, vanquish the thoughts and just what's here. You can let the, feel the story and the kind of feeling tone around the story, but then come into the body and feel where it's living most fully. Again, the caveat, if the, if the storyline has trauma in it, it can be too much to come to the body. And, and Sherry mentioned this in a re- and really did a beautiful job last night. There are times when we can't come into the body and it's actually contraindicated and it can trip off trauma and we really want to find other resources and make, find a sense of safety and balance and connection before we fully enter the body. So it's not like the rule is every time you've left, come back into the body. I just want to put that out there. And having said, for most of us, a lot of the time, there's a, a, a real magic to it. If we can really remember, just come right here, okay? But as you've noticed, that when we come back, if we've come back because we're leaving because of fear or craving or attachment stuff, what we're coming back to is going to be uncomfortable. It's going to be a feeling tone of something's missing or something's wrong. So what the rest of this talk is going to explore is how we then can become more and more skillful at being able to bring some heart presence into what's going on. And I'll mention a few key pathways of actually awakening through what we contact. Because whatever you contact that's in there is exactly what can serve freedom. In other words, if you contact fear and you can bring heart presence to it, it'll wake you up. If you contact grief and you bring heart presence to it, it'll wake you up. The common denominator of whatever you come home to here in the body is that there's going to be a combination of directly contacting the rawness of it with remembering, in some way remembering, love. And there's different ways of remembering. We're going to explore that. But each one involves touching vulnerability and remembering love. That's the alchemy. So example number one of um, how this begins to unfold is uh, one friend recently describing how she is um, in a kind of paralysis because she's a perfectionist. And it's becoming, she's in a season where that the judge and the voice of the perfectionist is so intense that it's making it impossible to make a move and keep on living her life in a way. And so she's, she's hearing the voices of doubt and she tries to, you know, soften and tries metta and so on. And what I asked her to do was to go ahead and let the perfectionist, that voice of doubt, be there and to feel feel its energy, 
and, and just ask it what it really needed. How did it want her to be with it? I'd like to recommend that part of inquiry or investigation to you, that when you encounter something difficult, one possible way of becoming more awake in the presence of that is just to ask that place, how does this want me to be with it? For her, the response was, just allow it to be there. In other words, stop trying to get rid of the perfectionist. And there's something radical and powerful when we realize that we've been trying to get rid of something. And if we just let it be there, if we can be willing to let it be there, that enough space opens up so that there's a shift in our sense of who we are. We're no longer the victimized or oppressed self that's fighting against the enemy. We become that space of awareness that can include There's a lot more resourcefulness then. This is step number one, that when we come into the body and sense that we're in some way opposed to what's there, if there can be some willingness to let it be, that in that allowing, we begin to wake up. Krishna Murti said that the most, the deepest expression of love is our full attention. Often uh, we'll be asked to, when something comes up in us, to relate to it with kindness, but we can't because the kindness isn't there. You can't manufacture kindness, but you can start with this willingness to just let it be there. And that allowing space is actually the beginning of love. And that's a really important realization, that if you just create the space and allow, there's a tenderness that will naturally arise in that space. So you don't have to love what's there. Just allow it. That's the opener. So then the inquiry is, okay, then how do we deepen attention? Because what we find is we allow, but then have you noticed that you allow something, and then your mind will dart into something else, and your body will get numb, and you'll have completely disconnected from whatever's going on. Then it'll come back again and slam you, but that time you'll be at war again. So how do we drop in more deeply? So I want to give you an example from um, very, very recently for me. I was... uh, at a 10-day retreat, a silent retreat, just a couple of weeks ago. And I really got to have one of those front row seats with evolution because I get to watch, you know, as we're doing, every one of you is doing in a way, watching the conditioning play out and also sensing really this capacity for presence and it's the whole show. So what I started finding was that um, as my heart started opening... Some of you might have found this. I started contacting a real anguish about how closed my heart was. (laughs) Can, Can anyone relate to that one? That you start opening and realizing how many moments and how much of our lives were not open. And so I started bringing people to mind. And I and I really did a lot of metta on this retreat because retreats are a great place because there's more openness. You're more available. And I would so I was bringing one. one person to mind from my family and he, you know, and I could see, and I could just sense, and it was really, really painful 
how locked in I was to, in some way, judging him, trying to fix him, control him, and how much that had really shut down loving. Like, the loving is there, I don't even question it, but it was anguish to know that I hadn't been really living from that loving. So that pain invited a deepened attention. And I, and I started deepening. And I, what you know as rain, this, this process of deepening attention and inquiring and investigating with kindness is pretty much what I was doing. Another language for it that I really love is tracing back the radiance. The radiance meaning that everything that comes up is an expression of life and awareness. And sometimes it comes up in a, in a torqued way or a tangled way. But if we can just stay with it and sink into it and sink into it, we get back right to the source of that radiance. It's, it's no different than rain. The more we sink into it and open to it, the less identification. But I like the sense of radiance because it gives you a sense of the gift that you come to the source. So I was going into it and into it. And that's where this play of what's going on, feeling and feeling the rawness and, and bringing in love started. It's, it's, you find that there's a back forth. You're feeling it and you try to bring in some kindness, but then you have to feel it some more. So for me, what I found was that I was really caught in self-recrimination. There was this sense of really being a bad person. Like, here he is, and he's doing the best he can, and he's got a struggle, and, is, and he's struggling, and he's hurting. And my route, judgment and control. So I'm being just very real with you that that just, it was really hard to live with the sense of, you know, it felt cruel. So I opened to that place in me that was feeling uh, bad, badness, personal badness, and ask the question I just shared with you, like, how does that place want me to be with it? You know, what does that place most need? That's the other question. What does this most need? And as you can imagine, it needed forgiveness in some way that to be the humanist to be okay. Forgiveness. So I called on compassion. You know, I was, I was hurting and I called on compassion. I called on the compassion that I sense as my own awakened heart, that warmth, that light. And there was, like, I could feel it in the field. And a field of light, and I tried to imagine it pouring in, but it was like this hard, tight ball. It was like, okay, compassion, but it wasn't getting in. And some of you may have experienced that when you're feeling really bad about yourself. You can have all the right ideas about holding with compassion, but it just doesn't penetrate. Anybody with me on this one? (laughs) Okay, thank you. (laughs) Just needed to feel that togetherness on it. (laughs) Okay. So um, I deepened attention to the self-blame. And here's where the inquiry, I said, you know, okay, so what's so bad? You know, what's the badness? What's really so bad about this? And it was what I mentioned that, you know, he, he's hurting and, um, you know, how could I, how could I do that? So then I kept on inquiring, like, what is driving this judgment? And this is, if you're, uh, if you're exploring self-compassion and self-forgiveness, it's really important to find out what is driving the behavior you're judging. What's behind it? It's not like you're just like born into this world and chose to go be judgmental and hurt someone, right? 
So what's behind it? And the metaphor that many of you are familiar with that I find endlessly helpful is that one of a person walking in the woods and a dog, they see a dog and go to pet the dog and the dog lurches at them with its fangs bared and really aggressive. And then they go from feeling a friendliness to a feeling of bad dog. And then they see that the dog's leg is in a trap. And then it shifts from bad dog to you poor thing. Part of wise investigation is to see how is our leg in a trap. We have to see it if we want to tenderize. We have to see the larger truth. And that's part of the truth. Yes, we behave in imperfect ways. And yes, there's some pain in there, usually some fear, some hurt, some unmet need that is driving things. And if we can include the bigger truth of what's driving, then we can start tenderizing. For me, what was driving was that I've known him for 50-some years, and when I was too young to, to in any way be of help, I was watching him in pain, and it was really, really painful to watch his pain. It really hurt. I felt powerless, and the only route I could have was to try to judge him and fix him as I got older. And I could sense that if I let myself say, if I said, well, what would happen if I stopped judging, the overwhelm of the grief for what he has struggled with was very hard to be with. But because my heart was more open, I could let the grieving be there. That's when I was, when I got the larger truth of, okay, there's all the judging and there's the pain that's underneath it. That's when I could begin to say, I'm sorry and I love you, which for me is just a phrase that works. I think we each have to find the phrases and the gestures that actually create a tenderness here, that you feel a warmth viscerally. So I could begin to say that, but not just say that. There was uh, a consciousness of feeling myself let it in. And I want to slow down here because I think that more than giving love, that our biggest block is there's a hardness that makes it difficult to receive. And that many of us, if we say, well, can you think of people that love you and can you feel their love, we might say yes. But I don't think we fully do because I've explored this with so many people now. I think it's very hard for us to let in, to be porous enough, to to have that much of a kind of a lack the edges, lack the boundaries so that we really, really feel that washing in viscerally. Does that make sense? The difficulty of letting in love? It needs to be part of the conscious process because just like breathing in and breathing out, we can't fully be in love. We can't relax into love, rest in love, unless there's that full washing through, unless there's really an undefended heart. So at this retreat, again, I, I... I had a lot of moments to be quiet and still, so it was a deep attention. When I said, I'm sorry and I love you, I actually allowed in, I felt that kind of washing through, that bathing of warmth 
and light and tenderness. And that was when I could really rest in love. I could just, it was almost like I was resting in and I was that space of compassionate tenderness and the grief and the other elements were like currents that were just kind of floating in it. That's the end of rain, that we're back to our natural wholeness, to this heart presence. And we have room for the fear and the guilt and the shame and the, and the grief. So I took some time in, in sharing this because there were some elements that are continuing to teach me. So I just, they felt alive and I wanted to share them. And the big ones are that we really have to, when we're down on ourselves, take the time to sense what are the fears and hurts and energies that are causing us to behave as we are, or we will not have the empathy. And the other is that when we're trying to offer in compassion or forgiveness, to really feel our body from the inside out, see if you can let it enter into the spaces between the cells, into the real interior space that's there. The final thing is that once we feel a sense of loving presence, once there's some melting or dissolving or resting in it, take your time there. Hang out. Get to know it. Because just as as Sherry was sharing this morning with taking in the good, we are very quickly imprinted by suffering and painful experiences and we remember them easily. It takes a lot more time for the brain to take the imprint of, uh, of really that kind of quality of love or gratitude or whatever. So let yourself get saturated in it. Get curious about what it's like. Really get to know it. Because the more you get to know it, the more quickly you'll access it. Okay? Okay, now, there are times when we're so stuck and so hurting that the sense of, okay, I'm going to hold myself with self-compassion and calling on love and presence, there is no access to call on our own love and presence because we feel too identified as a separate and not okay self. So this is the next step in, well, how then do we access love and presence? So when we can't reach in and offer in, we need to reach out for it. We need to, even if we don't believe it, assume, assume that there is a benevolence, there is a love in this universe. We've had it before, we've touched it, it's here. We're just out of touch and we need to reach out for it. And this is where prayer comes in. So this is uh, Clarissa Estes, Women Who Run With the Wolves. Refuse to fall down. If you cannot refuse to fall down, refuse to stay down. If you cannot refuse to stay down, lift your heart toward heaven. You may be pushed down. You may be kept from rising. But no one, no one can keep you from lifting your heart toward heaven. Only you. You may be pushed down, you may be kept from rising, but no one can keep you from lifting your heart toward heaven. Only you. So 
So I really love that one. Because no matter how stuck we are, and this is really, again, the promise of of this path that's so beautiful, the truth that we seek, the love that we yearn for, is here. And we can choose to reach out. So then there's ways, like, how do we do that? And, and in a way, the alchemy of prayer is that to reach out for love, for safety, for belonging, we have, it's, imagine a tree and we have to let our roots go down deep into where the vulnerability and the longing is. The, the tree cannot reach out with its strength and power and yearning unless the roots go really deep. So we have to be willing to touch into what's there touch into the hurt and touch into that placeness that profoundly yearns to belong deep deep down and then it's from that place that we need to actually call out prayer is such a beautiful thing with prayer there's an incredible humility it's like the ultimate receptivity where we get it that the ego can't do it we get it that all our stories about ourselves, fixing ourselves, judging us, none of that's working. So something in us just says, okay, I get that. There's this wisdom that says, and then opens our hands towards where it really lives in this timeless, eternal universe. Rumi says, whatever it is you call out to, that's what responds. So a story for you about prayer. And this was a retreat a number of years ago. I was uh, teaching a, a month long. And one of the women there, uh, we, we met regularly and developed a really deep connection, African-American woman. And she was describing her, her, her love of gospel and church and so on. And she was at the retreat and really loving how the worlds were coming together for her. And she was working with the same stuff that I've been mentioning tonight, a lot of insecurity, grief, sorrows, profound sense of not enough, not enough. Okay. And with that, a sense of around the corners failure. So that's one that a lot of us have and can relate to. One morning she came to one of our meetings and she had a really cheerful smile and she said, I went to church this morning. And I was a little surprised that you did. She goes, oh yeah, I went to church and we sang the gospel. It was rich. It was beautiful, Tara. So I'm sitting there in my mind. I'm just going to share what I was in my mind. I'm thinking, okay, so she left this secluded campus we're on and got in a car and went on a driveway. And this is like a four-week retreat, you know, and um, gathered with others and sang gospel and came back. And it's not part of our protocol. But, you know, I'm really a pragmatist. Like, I really am. So I figure whatever works. And I'm, she was cheerful. And the last interview we had had, she was really distraught and feeling so down on herself. She couldn't trust herself. She was bright and happy. So I figure each is their own way. You know, follow the compass of your heart. So she goes on, she says, oh, I was feeling that same fear and failure I told you about while I was at church. I was praying to be able to love myself. Because, you know, sometimes we want to love ourselves, we can't. She says, and then I wrapped Jesus like a shawl around me. And the peace just filled my heart. And I haven't taken the shawl off. That love just keeps warming me up. And it was just this jolt, I realized that, you know, it was metaphorical. And she hadn't gone somewhere, but she had gone somewhere. 
she had reached out. She was really down. She couldn't hold herself. So she reached out and she took that shawl, you know, that, that love that she had a way, you know, we each have our, whether, whether you think of Kuan Yin or the Buddha or Jesus or whether it's your dog or whether it's your grandmother or somebody in your life, we each have forms that the divine shines through that, that we can wrap like a shawl around us. We have to practice. It's like the 10,000 hours of master. You have to do it a lot to have it. But you know, she had, she loved gospel. She was familiar enough, but this time she had the meditative presence to really let it in. She let that warmth in. She told me a little more. She said, I'm wearing the shawl when I walk those hills and when I sip my tea and standing in line at lunch. And then she gave me this mischievous laugh. She has, she goes, yep, Tara, even in the shower, I'm wearing that shawl. <laughs> anyway. So again, I took a little time with that story, mostly because there's a real power to reaching out to prayer. John O'Donohue says, the bridge between longing and belonging. Prayer is the bridge between longing and belonging. And it's because, again, if you just, um, if you get into the posture and you really let the, your being feel the meaning of the posture, there's some sense of, of surrendering all the, the ego narratives and so on and opening to some larger eternal truth. There's a, a yearning and a listening. I, for myself, um, I was sharing this in one of the groups that when I got really caught in the fear around, you know, I was sick for so long and so many, you know, just, just my organism survival fears and how to handle it. The fear would be so strong. At times I would take it in two hands and I would just lower my head like this and just say, Beloved, take this. It's yours. And it wasn't like I was going, don't want it, throw it away. It was like, this belongs to something larger, can be held in something larger than this ego self. And just by going like this, it was like entrusting myself to something larger. My prayer most days, in some way, I, I have an altar and all, and I love getting into the posture of prayer. I love bowing, just because it works. It works to help let that self sense kind of get more porous and to feel something else that's larger. And I'll, in some way, say, please teach me about kindness. Please teach me about kindness. And there's something in the humility of teach me. I'm just sharing with you what works for me. So again, this is part of the experiment that we've been talking about these few days to find out ways of allowing, to find out ways of, of taking the love that's within your own high self and awake heart and offering it inward, to go deeper into the forgiveness by really including the whole truth, seeing the wholeness of yourself, not just the ego self that's in reactivity, but the fears underneath and to reach out when you need to reach out. And the gift, the gift of this heart presence is that we become more free, moment by moment, to live our lives from that place. And that's what we want. It's like, it's not just sitting still and feeling the beingness, it's living from that beingness so that our words really, really come from our hearts and our actions 
whether it's in serving or savoring or creating, whatever it is, that's the gift of heart presence. I mean, I started tonight with uh, talking about Andre's, you know, commitment to speak as if for the last time. And in a way, in the Native American tradition, it's called the warrior's last dance. It's like, make it beautiful. It's like, this is what we have. So, a closing story for you. I've been telling a lot of stories. I'm going to tell you one more. There's a book out now by a guy named Frazier. It's called On the Res, which has to do, which is really on the reservation. That's what it stands for. And he tells the story of Sue Ann Big Crow in it. It's a Native American pretty much a teenager, I think, when he's mostly talking about her life. But she became quite a hero for the tribe. Uh, she, she and her mother both very involved with uh, working with abuse, alcohol abuse, drug abuse. Uh, huge heart. Very, very awake person. So he tells the story of, uh, as a young girl, she was told that to be good at basketball, that she had to dribble a thousand times a day. And so she... Not only big heart, really, really very highly intentional person. So she goes, okay, a thousand times a day. Her family went crazy because it was all concrete, you know, where they lived. Right next to the house was concrete, and she was just out there dribbling. She went on to be a star basketball player, so to lead Pine Ridge High School onward, championships and so on. But in the story that he tells, they're having a competition between uh, Pine Ridge reservation and the town of Leeds. Now, Leeds, uh, the background is that Leeds had taken land originally belonging to First Nation people. It's a gold mining town and mostly white. That's the background because here we've got this team from the reservation going to play, um, play in co- competition against the Leeds crew. So he describes, Fraser describes a scene as the Pine Ridge girls wait to take the floor. And there's uh, a lot of racial tension. Here's what he says. He says, the lead fans were yelling epithets like squaw and gut eater. Some were waving food stamps, a a reference to the reservations receiving federal aid. Others yelled, where's the cheese? Which is a joke being that if Indians were lining up, as they were to play, it must be to get the commodity cheese. So you get the feeling of it, right? So the lead high school band joined in with fake Indian drumming and a fake Indian tune. It was, it was ugly. So the, the tradition is that the visiting team comes onto the field and they circle around it. Some of you have watched. And the captain of the girls' high school team uh, was was freaked out by what was going on. She didn't want to do it, and none of the older girls did, but Sue Ann was on for it. She was willing to do it. So she led her team into the gym and stopped at center court, and here's what happened. She took off her warm-up jacket and draped it over her shoulders, and she began a traditional shawl dance, singing a Lakota song. The crowd went completely silent. Then Sue Ann picked up a ball and dribbled around the court, and the fans began to cheer and applaud, and she sprinted to the basket, went up in the air, and laid the ball through the hoop, with the fans cheering loudly now. 
Of course, Pine Ridge went on to win the game. And as the story goes on, not only that, Sue Ann's bold act led to friendships developing between some members of both teams. Now, this story spread wide, went to the national press. This isn't the end of the story of the story, okay? Um, some years later, kind of recently, a reporter from South Dakota did some digging around and said, oh, that story's filled with exaggerations. Basically, he interviewed the Leeds crowd. So there's grown to be all these disparities from what the Leeds people are saying and what the tribal people at Pine Ridge are saying, and who knows the full truth. We know that uh, Sue Ann, Big Crow, was a larger-than-life figure in many, many domains, not just, I mean, she was not just on the basketball court, but who knows. But I was really struck by, um, in a way, that tension about what really happened and to the degree there was some mix of truth and mythologizing, who knows. But it made it more poignant for me, in a way. And I'll share with you why, that the Sioux tribe, I mean, everybody felt so strongly about this story. And I think that myths have archetypal truths in them. And that this one expressed the longing in every heart for our intrinsic goodness to be seen and respected, to feel that sense of dignity. This was a story about dignity. It was like a non-dominant part of the culture been so pushed down, and this was really an expression of, okay, being seen and honored for being who she was. She did her dance, her people's dance, her people's song. And it's also a myth about the truth that when we express what we love and who we are, when we're fully ourselves, the wounds of separation do start healing. So it's really an invitation, because uh, I feel like a lot of our, our path here is, is a path of reclaiming, that we, that we feel this alive, we have this aliveness in us, and this love, and this creativity. And all of us, whether we're from a dominant culture or non-dominant, live in a culture that cut us off in some ways from the truth of who we are. All of us have experienced that, some with a lot more pain than others. But all of us, to some degree, have been cut off. And so in a way, we're here paying attention and and saying, yes, I'm going to include this, and yes, I'm going to include this, and yes, I want to include you. And, And the more we can include, the vaster we get. And the more we can include, with heart presence, the more we become free to actually do the warrior's last dance, to live these moments, to not wait. We don't have to wait till we get a diagnosis. And if we have a diagnosis, we don't have to wait for something else to happen or for the pain to go away or for anything. This is the invitation. So I'd like to close, if we can, just taking a few moments where we again come into... Uh, a reflective presence.
and notice in the pausing and in the silence just what's happening inside you in these moments. The essence of our practice again and again is this noticing or recognizing and the allowing that as it goes very deep can be absolutely filled with tenderness. So just explore for you in this moment how deep can that yes or that forgiving presence or loving presence with just what is, how deep can that go in this moment? Perhaps noticing that the more profound the yes, that loving inclusion, the more vast and inclusive this heart truly becomes a heart space where everything is welcome. From the Radiant Sutras, there is a place in the heart where everything meets. Go there if you want to find me. Mind, senses, soul, eternity, all are there. Are you there? Enter the bowl of vastness that is the heart. Give yourself to it with total abandon. Quiet ecstasy is there and a steady, regal sense of resting in a perfect spot. Once you know the way, the nature of attention will call you to return again and again and be saturated with knowing, I belong here. I am at home here. Once you know the way, the nature of attention will call you to return again and again and be saturated with knowing, I belong here, I am at home here. Namaste and thank you for your presence and attention. The talk you just listened to has been freely offered. If you'd like to make a donation, 
learn more about my schedule or about programs offered by the Insight Meditation Community of Washington, please visit either my website, which is tarabrock.com, or IMCW's site, which is imcw.org. Thank you very much.